Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. The crisis in Yemen is getting worse by the day. Hospitals are being bombed seemingly at a routine frequency. Some 10,000 people have been killed, and extremist groups affiliated with al-Qaeda and ISIS have gained a foothold in parts of the country. Yemen is the region's poorest country, and since the Arab Spring, it's also been one of the most unstable countries in the Gulf region. In March 2015, a rebel group known as the Houthis consolidated control over the capital city Sana'a and moved against the internationally recognized government of President Hadi. That brought in Saudi Arabia, which led a U.S.-backed military intervention in support of the beleaguered president. Meanwhile, U.N.-backed mediation efforts proceeded haltingly, and now there is really no end in sight to this conflict. On the line with me to discuss the current situation in Yemen, the roots of the conflict, and potential opportunities to advance a peace process is Adam Barron, a visiting fellow with the European Council on Foreign Relations. Adam goes pretty deep into the historic roots of instability in Yemen, which he traces to the early 1990s, and I think offers a pretty helpful way to understand how the crisis in Yemen was able to devolve into the catastrophe it is today. But before we get into this fascinating and frankly, I found very helpful conversation, uh, I think you know it's coming. We are still in fundraising mode here at Global Dispatches. Please make a contribution to the podcast. I so appreciate it. It helps me uh, maintain the show. Uh, you know, I want to be able to put out this show at this high level, this high quality, and this frequency, frankly, of, of two episodes a week, every week indefinitely. But in order to do so, I need your support. So go to globaldispatchespodcast.com, click on the support the show link and make a contribution. I ask these contributions to come in monthly recurring installments because the consistency uh, that that enables uh, allows me to plan, frankly, for the resources that I'm going to uh, invest into the show. So again, I so appreciate it. And as a sweetener, if you would like, I will send you a book at random for my own personal collection of foreign policy books. And who does not like getting a random book in the mail? Uh, so please go to globaldispatchespodcast.com, make the contribution. If you're listening to this in the podcast app, just on your phone right now, click on the link in the description page, and it'll send you right to a page where you can make a contribution. The contributions are via PayPal. You don't need an account, just a credit card. And I don't get any of that credit card information. PayPal just pays me monthly. So please do make that contribution. I, I so, so support it. I frankly need it to be able to keep doing this. Uh, and I depend on you to make it possible. Okay, so here is Adam Barron of the European Council on Foreign Relations. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. 
What you're seeing when you look at the situation right now is this kind of contradictory, but I mean, not particularly rare uh, situation where you have the situation on the ground has been escalating and continues to escalate. And while this initially followed the breakdown of talks, now you're seeing this escalation come along with an escalation of diplomatic efforts um, aimed at ending the conflict or providing some sort of peace deal. Uh, so it's it's this bizarre situation where as the fighting really intensifies on the ground, uh, you also have this shuttle diplomacy uh, epitomized by uh, the work of the UN Special Envoy, Melil Sheikh Ahmed, who I feel like is on a plane every two to three days, sort of as different uh, diplomatic actors are effectively traveling from regional capital to regional capital, and then back to London, uh, New York, or DC with some frequency, aiming to hear from uh, the key warring factions. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, of course, the key factions are still not speaking with each other. And, and, and so how has this escalation on the ground uh, been manifest recently? I mean, these Saudi airstrikes that seem to routinely hit humanitarian targets, such as Doctors Without Borders, MSF hospitals, and, and other civilian targets. I mean, that seems to be one manifestation uh, of this escalation. How else um, has this conflict seemingly gotten worse in recent weeks? I mean, you've had the uh, these series of airstrikes, well, not just in in those areas, but also continuing airstrikes in in Sanaa. In many cases, the airstrikes are hitting sort of empty military um, installations, which have been, you know, bombed countless times over the past year and a half. What, they're just like running out of targets? I, I mean, that's been a question. I mean, I remember hearing from, I mean, to some extent, all of the key targets were, most of the key static targets were hit uh, quickly after after the conflict began. Um, and so in addition, I mean, it's obviously more than just Saudi bombing. The Houthis are and their allies are, you know, engaging in shelling across the Saudi border. You've had a number of civilians uh, killed in Saudi territory there. And then this comes in addition to the fighting to the fighting on the various internal front lines. So you've seen, you know, intensified fighting in ties where which is largely taking place in, in civilian areas. Uh, and Taiz is a city in Yemen. Taiz is, yeah, Taiz is Yemen's third largest city. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've seen uh, intensified fighting in Taiz where the Houthis and resistance fighters have been enmeshed in a uh, longstanding conflict, uh, you know, effectively since I think even shortly around the start of, of the Saudi-led intervention. Uh, you've seen intensified fighting on, on key front lines in the provinces of Marib in the center of the country, El Beda also in the center of the country. And then you've also seen, you know, increasing, you know, non-military efforts, mm-hmm. which I think would be epitomized by the fact that, uh, you know, you've seen Sana'a airport now shut by orders of the Saudi-led coalition by, by almost a month now, meaning... Yeah. And, and Sana is the capital city, and, and the airport is is the just the main commercial airport into the country. I, I mean, you've seen there have been very limited, uh, very limited flights in and out of Sana for for some time. It's effectively been at the mercy of what the coalition decides. Um, because the coalition controls the air power, yeah, though exactly. Sana is uh, in the ground uh, under the control of the the Houthi forces. Yeah, but in the sky, it's a different story. Um, so, so can we back up a little bit? How did we get here? Who are are the major groups? How do you e- explain the Yemen conflict to someone who might not be um, as closely following this as you or even even I? I mean, there's always it's always the key question of when did when did the conflict start? When did this start? I think in a lot of ways, the easiest date to put is 1990. 
1990, or prior to 1990, Yemen was two separate countries. Uh, the Yemen Arab Republic, uh, which was, I mean, your kind of classic, um, your classic Arab Republic in the model of Nasser's Egypt, uh, Saddam Hussein's Iraq, that sort of deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and the PDRY, the People's Democratic Republic of Yemen, which was, or South Yemen, which was the only uh, Marxist state in the Middle East. In 1990, uh, after both a devastating civil war in the South in 1986 and uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union, the South's unsurprisingly uh, primary backer, you see this sudden marriage of convenience uh, between North Yemen and South Yemen. It seemed like a great idea at the time, but things didn't really work out. So you have this civil war in 1994 that leads to uh, the defeat of Southern forces, although to call them Southern is a bit of an exaggeration because a number of Southerners, including uh, current President Abdurrahman Mansour Hadi, actually fought alongside pro-unity Northern forces because the people who were on the opposite side of the Civil War in 1986 fought against the people who were still Southerners, uh, but fought against them in 86 as sort of a form of you know revenge, for lack of a better word. Mm-hmm. So in 1994, after 1994, you have this triumvirate who are the same people, by and large, that were controlling the bulk of the power in, in North Yemen uh, prior to 1990. Uh, you have this triumvirate kind of consolidate their power in northern Yemen. And you have three people. First, the president, Ali Abdullah Saleh, obviously. Then you have his longtime military ally, a man named Ali Mohsen al-Ahmar, who played an instrumental role in 1994, uh, who had the first armored division, and then also had longstanding ties with various Islamist factions, including playing a role in facilitating the transit of, uh, you know, the Mujahideen, Yemeni Mujahideen into Afghanistan during the war against the Soviets. Mm-hmm. The third figure you have is Sheikh Abdullah Al-Ahmar, uh, who, the late Sheikh Abdullah Al-Ahmar, who is the paramount Sheikh of the Hashid tribe, and then was sort of the key tribal force um, between, behind this triumvirate. Although, of course, Ali Mohsen and Ali Saleh also had their tribal allies. So effectively, these three people at first go about consolidating their power all over the country, whether by installing people directly from their inner circle into the south and into other areas or by installing people um, who are, you know, southern allies of themselves in, in key positions to the south. So the first, the first result of this is effectively the north extends a uh, – basically consolidates power and marginalizes the people who were previously ruling the south. Uh, this first aspect leads to the rise of the Southern movement in 2007, um, a secessionist movement, which has by and large been marginalized since that point. The second phenomenon you have is early in 2000, in the early 2000s, as a response to the growth of Salafi influenced ideologies, Salafi Muslim Brotherhood ideologies in Northern Yemen, much of which were, uh, put out with the support of both Ali Mohsen and, uh, many of the backers of Sheikh Abdullah al-Ahmar's Islam party, which incorporated the bulk of the Muslim Brotherhood, mm-hmm. um, and with the acquiescence of Salah. In response to this, you have the rise of a Zaidi revivalist group that at that point called themselves uh, the Shibab al-Mu'min, led by Hussein al-Houthi, uh, who eventually gave his name to what uh, we call the Houthis. Although so these, these are the rise of the Houthi rebels uh, yes. that, that we now in the media refer to, you know, shorthand as, as the group. We call that, them the Houthis. Yeah, they, yeah, they called themselves Shabab before, then they call, now they call themselves Ansarullah, but it's kind of, I mean, I compare it to, you know, Mormons and Latter-day Saints. Um, 
you know. Two names for the same thing. Two names for the same thing. And then you have the informal, the more formal name, which is long, and then the shorthand, which everybody tends the, to the use. So, so this is the rise of, of the Houthis. And in fact, you have the rise of the Houthis, who initially under the leadership of the founding the founding leader, Hussein al-Houthi, and then eventually under the leadership of the current leader, his brother, uh, Abdelmelik al-Houthi, uh, waged a continuing insurgency against, or an insurgency, an intermittent, I would say, insurgency against the central government uh, for the better part of the first decade of the 21st century. So in addition to these two factions, on which you could say the margin of the Yemeni state, that would be you know the Houthi insurgency on the far north and the rise of the southern movement in the formerly independent south, inside Sana'a, inside what you would call the establishment class, you have two sets of deepening divisions. Uh, the first manifests itself in a partisan division, uh, where... Uh, Salah's General People's Congress Party and the Islam Party, which was, as I said, it incorporates the bulk of the Yemeni Muslim Brotherhood, sort of a Sunni Islamist party. Up until a few years after 1994, they were effectively partners in power uh, because there were two parties allied against uh, the former ruling party in the South, the Socialist Party. Mm-hmm. But after effectively vanquishing Southern forces uh, and consolidating power, tensions build between Salah's GPC and the Islam party. This really becomes open, particularly after the death of Sheikh Abdullah al-Ahmar. On the second hand, you also have deepening tensions between Ali Mohsen and Ali Abdullah Saleh. In a lot of ways, this is about things moving from the first generation uh, to the second generation. Uh, Ali Mohsen and Ali Abdullah Saleh, or Ali Mohsen was a partner in Ali Abdullah Saleh's rise. They both hail from the same village uh, called Beit al-Ahmar, no relation to the al-Ahmar family, of course in the same district tribal area in Sana'a, outside of Sana'a rather, called Sanhan. So once you get everything was divided in the first sort of, uh, you can say everything was divided for the first generation. Once you get to the second generation, Salah starts moving more powers away from other people, particularly Ali Mohsen, and aims to consolidate it around his sons and nephews, uh, particularly his son, Ahmed Ali. It sort of sounds like kind of like, a, you know, you have these different power centers, like a Game of Thrones sort of thing, where you just have people competing, um, you know, over over power centers. Yeah. So effectively, you have all of these different powder kegs that are ready to burst. And then the Arab Spring happens, 2011. Um, obviously, beyond all of these various issues, the average Yemeni had you know, quite a lot to complain about. So it's unsurprising that you see widespread street protests, mm-hmm. uh, various independent factions calling for an end to corruption, greater development, accountable governance, all of these things. And, and it's worth pointing out, I, I think that Yemen is by far the poorest country uh, in the region, yes. even before uh, this devastating civil war. Its levels of human development are, are markedly lower uh, than, than every other country in, in, in the Arabian Peninsula, at least. Yeah, so when you had 2011... Um, and the sort of the, you know, those halcyon days of the Arab Spring sweeping the region, it was unsurprising that Yemen was affected. And at that point, you had the Houthis throw in and support the overthrow of Saleh, the Southern Movement throw in and support the overthrow of Saleh. Um, what am I missing? And then, you know, Isla and their partners, uh, the joint meeting parties, and Ali Mohsen all throw in to support the overthrow of Saleh. At the end of 2011, you have a power transfer deal that marginalizes both the Houthis and the key southern factions 
but splits power between the establishment opposition and Salah's party and makes Salah's longtime vice president, Abdurrahman Mansour Hadi, uh, president. So this is a, a sort of an important point to, to I think, to unpack a, a little bit. So this uh, power-sharing deal was the result of pretty intense diplomacy at the time uh, by the Gulf Cooperation Council, uh, among others. And, you know, at least from my reporting at the time, it was, you know, described as a way to potentially stave off um, Yemen descending into, you know, a, a horrible civil war. And and some of the leaders of the Arab Spring movement in Yemen at the time, you know, won the Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, and, and so there was at least at the, at the time, to me, it seemed like a potential that Yemen could be actually a model for how to handle a, a power transition. But alas, it did not turn out that way. Yeah, although, I mean, if, if the, the argument could be made that it did successfully stave off a civil war, it just you know, effectively pressed pause for two to three years. And now we're seeing, you know, the results of the failure of various key factions to effectively use uh, this period where things were on pause. Okay. So in, uh, in, in, well, I should say in, in, in 2012, um, President Saleh, the long-serving, long-serving ruler of Yemen, uh, was basically ousted in this uh, power-sharing deal. And one of the causes of his ouster was that the Houthis allied against him. Uh, and now here we are in 2016, and Saleh and the Houthis are our allies. How did we get like this kind of full circle? I think in Yemen, it's often about, I've sort of been using this term, the hierarchy of mistrust. So you have two issues, sort of one is the hierarchy of mistrust, where the Houthis and Salah, at this point particularly after a year and a half of armed conflict, while they distrust each other tremendously, uh, they distrust each other less than they distrust any other faction, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. When it comes to this first growth of the, of the alliance between the Houthis and Salah, I think to some extent it was more organic than it may sound. Um, the Houthis and Salah had a shared enemy in, or a perceived shared enemy in uh, the Islam party, which they viewed as taking an undue amount of power in the transition. From Salah's standpoint, he viewed them as taking power, which he thought you know, belonged to his party. And from the Houthis, they viewed themselves as not getting, you know, the proper seat of the table. So what you have, particularly over the course of 2014, after the inconclusive end of Yemen's Council of Nas- or, excuse me, Conference of National Dialogue, is this steady march by the Houthis towards the capital. Now, it's often portrayed as if the Houthis are kind of just plowing through, uh, but the Houthis played a pretty wise role in conducting sort of what you can call tribal diplomacy, uh, where there obviously were clashes and they were violent and people got killed. Uh, but once things ended, they were definitely sort of allying themselves with other tribal forces to make sure that they would be putting their allies in or people acquiescing to their allies, but still people hailing from that general area. Eventually they get down from Sana, get down to Sana. Um, and take over the city in September 21st as 
you know, the entire Yemeni military establishment allows it to happen. Ali Mohsen flees along with a number of other uh, Islam aligned or Islamist, Sunni Islamist figures. Um, and had pre- president, the, the sort of internationally recognized president Hadi fled at that point as well? No. So this is where things get complicated. Huh. So at that point, Hadi signs a UN broker deal uh, that ostensibly gives the Houthis a seat at the table in exchange for them withdrawing from Sana'a and other cities. Uh, so what happens moving forward is the Houthis don't withdraw. In fact, they kind of install kind of their own people in each ministry. Uh, their presence is all over, all over Sana'a, and indeed they expand, you know, west to the Red Sea coast, south down to Taiz, east to Madib. Um so they're taking over the country at this point. Yeah, and then, but then at the same time, the argument the Houthis use is, you know, Hadi didn't follow through on anything he was following through on either. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have this constant sort of back and forth where everyone accuses each other of not following through with their commitments, when in reality, no one is really following through with their commitments. But at this point, the violence is, is still somewhat low level, at least compared to what it is today. Right. So what you have in Feb, once it hits February of 2015... Um, you have this situation where the Houthis are trying, basically trying to force a number of things that are, uh, basically force Hadi to make a number of decrees, uh, which Hadi and for that matter, the bulk of Yemen thought was, thought were unacceptable. The Houthis effectively forcing their way into dealing with it. Uh, Hadi refuses. So they put Hadi, they begin putting Hadi and other members of the government under house arrest in response to this, uh, the entire cabinet and Hadi resign. And then they put them under a tighter form of house arrest. Shortly after that, Hadi escapes from house arrest and goes down to the city of Aden, the former southern capital. He declares how do, you, how do you escape from house arrest if you're the president of the country? It's one of the many, many mysteries of Yemen. Um, <laughs> there was an inside job from what I was told. Um, but we'll see. I mean, it's it's a mystery. It's yeah, one of Yemen's many mysteries. Okay, so he so then he flees to the port city of Aden. Uh, the former southern capital declares it Yemen's southern capital, gives a very sort of speech saying, you know, we're going to beat the Houthis, rally around me. Uh no one really does. <laughs> and then the Houthis, meanwhile, are steamrolling down, particularly after a really bloody double suicide bombing targeting two uh Zaidi mosques in Sana'a, which they blame on Hadi. Um, in addition to jihadi factions. Uh, so they barrel down to Aden, effectively plunge the city of Aden, which until this point was pretty pretty much just kind of sitting outside the conflict. They plunge Aden into a you know, street-by-street uh, conflict as local people start arming themselves and fighting the Houthis, um, in addition to a strong jihadi element. But when it started, it was largely local people forming you know, committees and stuff. So that, either way, that prompts Hadi to flee to Oman. Um, totally different country. Uh, yeah. Nobody really, well, through, basically flees to Oman. Um, eventually, you know, about a good day of sheer confusion. Um, and then, you know, within about 24 hours, maybe 36 max, Saudi Arabia declares Operation Decisive Storm uh, and bombs start falling in Yemen. 
So why does Saudi Arabia opt to back President Hadi as opposed to any one of the other multiple forces that you've described in, in Yemen as being sort of power centers and power players? So when it comes to Hadi, it's about the framework. It's not necessarily about Hadi as a person, but Hadi for what he represents. So Hadi is Yemen's internationally recognized government. So they're backing him not because they think he's particularly effective um, and, you know, but because he is Yemen's internationally recognized president and they feel that any sort of other action, one, would be uh, – they feel like he's the best way. One, that he must be – that preserving Yemen's internationally recognized president is key or government and president is key. And two, that that's the best way of legitimizing this war. Uh, this second question. Sure, why did yeah. Saudi Arabia launch this war? And I think you can talk about anxiety about the Houthis, et cetera, anxiety about the Houthis' ties to Iran, but really you're looking at three reasons. One, when the Houthis used the Yemeni Air Force to bomb Hadi in the presidential palace for the Saudis, that crossed a red line. Two, uh, when the Houthis announced that they would begin this, I think it was like six I can't remember the exact number, but a large number of direct international flights between Sana'a and Tehran for the Saudis. That was also a red line. And then third, when the Yemeni army under the Houthis control uh, started performing military exercises just south of the Saudi border. Uh, that was also seen as a red line. So you have these three red lines um, and, and these prompt Saudi to act. And, and I mean, is it fair to say that, um, you know, while the you know the media shorthand is that the Houthis are Iran-backed rebels. That that's probably overstating it a bit, but it's fair to say that they are far more sympathetic, say, to Iran than to Saudi Arabia at this point. Yeah, I mean, I would say if you describing the Houthis as Iran-backed rebels isn't necessarily inaccurate, but I think it's misleading. Um, the Houthis would exist if it wasn't for Iran. Uh, the Houthis' strength comes far more from their internal alliance. If you're looking at what's making the Houthis powerful, um, one, it's internal factors. And if you're looking at any other figure inside or outside the country that's aiding the Houthis and making them, you know, you could say perhaps more powerful than they should be, uh, that would be former President Ali Abdullah Saleh rather than, rather than the Iranians. That being said, you know, are the Houthis sympathetic to Iran to some extent? Yes. Are the Iranians extremely keen to use the Houthis as a way to kind of poke Saudi Arabia from its soft southern underbelly? Yes, absolutely. Are the Iranians uh, attempting to send weapons to the Houthis? We've seen evidence, some you know, tentative evidence of that. Obviously, the Houthis are going to accept it, even though if you look at particularly the areas where the Houthis come from, they're already quite awash with weapons. And then finally, you know, are the Houthis going to take sympathetic coverage from wherever they can get it? You know, of course they will. And the fact that you have this, you know, stream of sort of, you know, Iran allied or quote unquote resistance axis media uh, presenting, you know, news with a Houthi bias. Of course, the Houthis are going to take that when you have other key regional satellite networks, whether you're talking about Jazeera, Arabia, et cetera, um, all, you know, presenting the Saudi side of the story quite um, um. Blindly. So, so now it seems that today we have the situation where you have the the Houthis in in the capital Sana. You have the uh, Hadi 
government forces, or I don't know how best to describe them, uh, but controlling other parts of, of the country um, in what seems to be a, a stalemate in which um, extremist Islamist movements have also uh, gained a foothold. How have they fit into the ongoing uh, conflict? I mean, generally, you have them really taking advantage of this power vacuum. Uh, initially, you had sort of a situation, particularly in the South, uh, where, I mean, I think to say that to say that uh, jihadi groups were being openly backed by uh, coalition or anti Houthi forces is an exaggeration. But you had a you had a situation where, for anti Houthi forces, the priority was not uh, beating back jihadi groups. The priority was fighting the Houthis. Since that, you have seen that really change, and there have been strong anti Al Qaeda. Uh, Offensive largely backed by the Emiratis uh, in both Aden, uh, Abiyan, and, and Hadramaut. That being said, when you, as long as you have the power vacuum, which you quite clearly have across Yemen, particularly in areas which are not, which have been uh, ostensibly liberated from the Houthis, this is, this is fertile ground for groups like Al Qaeda. This is fertile ground for, for sort of religious extremist groups that can take advantage of, of the fact that they now have space to operate, that there's no one force with a monopoly on power. Um, so at the outset of the conversation, you mentioned the UN-backed uh, mediation efforts and, and peace talks. Um, what are or what would be elements of uh, a resolution of this, this conflict? Like what are um, prospects for a peace and how might uh, peace look? I think that's a good question. You're going to need to have some sort of Houthi withdrawal from from key cities. Uh, there's, it's hard to imagine a way that, that doesn't happen. Um, there's going to have to be some sort of implementation in some form. I think it's more flexible than it's made out to be uh, of UN Resolution 2216, uh, which demands a restoration of of the Yemeni government. But then at the same time, I think there's going to have to be a reshaping of, of Yemen's power structure. Um, there's going to have to be some form of unity government. You're going to have to have a uh, new leadership at the top. Uh, and there's going to have to be an understanding that, that really the situation on the ground has, has changed. Um, odd in the South, it's not, you know, facts on the ground have been, have already been, created. You have de facto centralization in many, or excuse me, de facto decentralization in many key parts of Yemen. So that means any power deal or any political deal that's just between, you know, the, so the two sides, you know, between the internationally recognized government and the Houthis and Salah, that could really only be the beginning for further deals. You're going to need to have uh, the various southern factions brought in. You're going to need to have uh, diocese brought in in a more coherent way. You're going to need to have, you know, tribes of people in Madhav and Al-Jof and Al-Beda brought in in a more coherent way. You're going to need to have the issues of people in Hadramaut, the eastern province of Hadramaut, and the uh, far eastern border province with Oman, uh, province of Mahra, uh, brought in in a coherent way as well. So, I, so any, mm-hmm. even if by some miracle, uh, Ismail Sheikh Ahmed brokers a deal in the coming you know two weeks we're talking about something that's just the beginning um this there's would be significant hard work ahead and any deal uh that 
treats sauna as the only key factor to deal with, uh, sauna, I'm speaking metaphorically, but the Yemeni political establishment as the only thing to deal with and ignores uh, the periphery, ignores the margins. Um, I think as history demonstrates, that's just basically paving the way for another conflict. I think the clock that's chiming in the background is adding a, a level of urgency uh, to to this conversation. And sorry, about that. Uh, no, 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 and, and is is sort of I think dramatically just showing how you know just time <laughs> is running out on solving this Yemen conflict before it spirals even more deeply out of control. So thank you uh, so much for your time, Adam. Uh, no problem. Thank you. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Adam. I found this very helpful. Uh, and as I mentioned at the outset, please do make a contribution to the podcast. I so appreciate it. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com. Click on the support the show link. Or if you're listening to this in iTunes, click on the link in the description page on your phone right now and make that contribution. I depend on it, frankly. I, I cannot keep doing this uh, without your support. And I want to keep doing this. You know, I hear from you how much you uh, appreciate the show, how many of you, frankly, you know, um, plan your days, your weeks, your commutes uh, around new episodes. I want to keep making new episodes. Uh, so help me help you. All right. Thanks so much. I, I appreciate this. Thanks, guys. Bye.